Hello, and welcome to the APOG podcast. I'm the show's host and creator, Morgan Bechtel, and today we'll be learning about the rather intimate history behind the pap smear. And let me tell you, it is certainly an interesting one. From guinea pigs to medical spas, pap parties to cornflakes, eugenics to Ellis Island, this episode might just have it all. We'll learn how the work of two men, and I would argue one woman's great contribution, saved millions of lives and helped stave off the number one killer of women at the time. So hold tight to your speculums as we dive into the history behind the past man. Our story begins with Dr. George Papaniklau, born May 13, 1883, on the beautiful Greek island of Eubea. The son of a local doctor, he followed in his father's footsteps and attended the University of Athens. What was his major, you ask? Not biology or chemistry, as one would suspect. Rather, he majored in music and the humanities, but ended up graduating with his MD in 1904 at the ripe old age of 21. Dr. Papanikolaou spent his early career caring for the leprosy patients who lived on the outskirts of his hometown of Kimi. Like many doctors at the time, he traveled to Western Europe, the hotbed of medical education, and enrolled at the University of Munich in Germany, where he eventually graduated in 1910 with a degree in zoology. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, what was a man with a zoology degree doing studying vaginas? Well, patience, my friends, it will all become clear soon enough. Dr. Papanikolaou was an adventurous man. After graduating with his PhD, he joined an oceanographic exploration team funded by Prince Albert I of Monaco, where he explored the world's vast oceans and worked as a physiologist, helping examine and classify many different types of aquatic life. Now, his aquatic adventures eventually came to an end when war broke out for his homeland of Greece. So Dr. Papanikolaou would end up spending the next several years working as lieutenant and army surgeon during the Balkan Wars. Now, for those of you like me who have no idea what the Balkan Wars were, really, the only thing to remember is that they were two conflicts, one in 1912, one in 1913, that included Bulgaria, Greece, Montenegro, Serbia, and Romania. Now, if you want to know more, I'm sure there's a podcast out there, but for now, we'll get back to our story. It was during his military service that he met some American volunteers who told him of the job opportunities in America. Intrigued by the possibilities, after the war, Dr. Papanikolaou packed up his things and decided to pursue his very own American dream. With his wife, a couple of suitcases, and a grand total of $250 in his pocket, Dr. Papanikolaou crossed through Ellis Island on October 13, 1913, eager to start his new life in New York. At first, things were not easy for the young couple. Neither of them spoke much English, and they had trouble finding employment. Like today, four medical degrees do not transfer over in the United States. So, unable to find a medical job without an American degree, Dr. Papanikolaou was forced to take jobs wherever he could find them. In those early years, he worked as a rug salesman in a department store, a violin player in a restaurant, and a clerk at a Greek newspaper. He was finally able to find his way back to science in 1914, when he obtained a research assistant position at New York University's pathology department, and then again at Cornell University's medical college anatomy department. His wife would eventually join him as a technician. Now, he would eventually go on to become an assistant professor at Cornell, and would end up working there for over 50 years. He would eventually leave Cornell to move down to Miami to help start the Miami Cancer Institute. But unfortunately, shortly after arriving in Miami, he suffered a fatal heart attack at the age of 78, dying on February 9th, 1962. 
While working as a research assistant in Cornell, Dr. Papanicolaou would put his zoology degree to good use. He'd be helping Charles Stockard, the chairman of the anatomy department, with his research into the reproductive cycle of the guinea pigs. Through trial, error, and a little dumb luck, Dr. Papanicolaou discovered that you could note the cellular changes in the vaginal smears of guinea pigs depending on where they were in the reproductive cycle. Now, as you can imagine, there's not a ton of overlap between the reproductive cycles of guinea pigs and humans, but this got him thinking. Do the cells from the female cervix have the same cyclical changes as they do in guinea pigs? And if they do, would we be able to track where a woman was in her menstrual cycle just by looking at these vaginal smears? While the use of ethics committees and IRBs were not around in the early 1900s, there weren't exactly many women lining up to have a man stick a rod up their vagina in the name of science. Because he wasn't licensed as a medical doctor in the U.S., he didn't have easy access to hospital patients as potential research subjects. In fact, for many years, his wife Andromache, or Mary Papanicolaou, was his only test subject. Providing what I'm sure most women would consider a great sacrifice, Mary underwent 21 years of daily pap smears to assist her husband with his research. Whether her motivation was her love for her husband or the desire to make an impact in the lives of other women, we'll never know. But one cannot say she didn't have a vital role in the Papanicolaou research. In a desperate attempt to get more research subjects, Mary invited a group of her friends over for a party and ended up convincing these women to participate in her husband's study. Can you even imagine just showing up to a party, you know, having a good time, when all of a sudden the host is asking you, oh, um, do you mind spreading your legs so uh, my husband can take a quick, you know, vaginal swab? It it's for science. Well, if these ladies didn't know each other well before the party, they certainly did afterwards. Now, weeks later, when Dr. Papanicolaou was reviewing the samples taken from the party, he saw that there were cancer cells visible on one of the slides. He's quoted as saying, The first observation of cancer cells in the smear of the uterine cervix gave me one of the greatest thrills I ever experienced during my scientific career. As his research continued, he was eventually able to convince some local gynecologists to send slides from patients with various ailments, like fibroids, cysts, abscesses, and cancer, to see if these conditions were associated with distinct cellular changes in the vaginal swabs. And nothing showed more cellular changes than, you guessed it, cervical cancer. Excited by this new form of cancer detection, Dr. Papanicolaou, at the encouragement of his boss, presented this research at the third race betterment conference in Battle Creek, Michigan. Now, if that title made you go, wait, what? That's because it was as cringy as it sounds. The third race betterment conference was a meeting of national scientists, educators, and political leaders devoted to the promotion of the concept and implementation of eugenics. And who hosted this conference, you may ask? Well, none other than the president of the Race Betterment Foundation, Mr. John Harvey Kellogg himself. If I could take a short aside, I want to dive a little into the man, the myth, and the legend that is Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. A name often only associated with the popular breakfast cereal, he might be most famously known for starting the Battle Creek Sanatorium, nicknamed the San, which was a health spa that was considered quite fashionable among the upper classes at the time. Patrons included former presidents like Warren Harding and William Taft, Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, John D. Rockefeller, Amelia Earhart, and Sojourner Truth, who was a famous black abolitionist and women's rights activist. Now, Dr. Kellogg was a firm believer that health was achieved and maintained by living a healthy lifestyle. 
At this health spa, Dr. Kellogg had guests follow a very rigorous exercise regime. They stuck to a a grain and vegetable-based diet and had several colonics, or enemas, a day. He also forbade them from drinking, smoking, or having caffeine of any kind. He also believed that sex or sexual pleasure for anything other than procreation sapped the soul and the spirit. So he was a, um, a super fun guy, for sure. Now, I couldn't find anything in my research that stated that Dr. Papanikolaou supported the eugenics movement or that he was a member of the Race Betterment Foundation, but I do think it's important to highlight this part of American medical history. There was, and continues to be, systemic racism ingrained within healthcare. It's vital that we address these systemic inequities in order to ensure that all patients are treated with respect and dignity, and given the same perceptive, attentive medical care that all are entitled to and deserve. Okay, back to our boy, Papa Nicolau. So he publishes and presents his research on the cellular changes in cervical cancer, but this was pretty much received with little fanfare. At the time, many scientists did not see the potential of the pap smear. Biopsies were the main way to detect cancers at the time, but this required that a tumor or growth be large enough to find on exam, not to mention the painful experience of having a biopsy taken. Disgruntled but determined, Dr. Papanikolaou continued his research on cervical cells, and over 10 years later, he published a paper entitled The Diagnostic Value of Vaginal Smears in Carcinoma of the Uterus, which showed that his vaginal smear technique could be used to detect precancerous cells in the cervix, meaning that they could detect cervical cancer and treat the patient earlier than ever before. And from there, the rest was history. Like with many scientific discoveries, there is some controversy as to whether Dr. Papanikolaou is truly the first person to discover precancerous cells of the cervix. In 1927, Romanian physician Dr. Ariel Babes used a platinum loop to collect cells from a woman's cervix to detect cancerous cells. For whatever reason, be it the power of Cambridge College in the medical establishment at the time, Dr. Papanikolaou is generally credited as the father of the pap smear. The pap smear revolutionized the detection of cervical cancer. In the 1940s, when it was first introduced, cervical cancer was the number one killer of women. As more doctors adopted Dr. Papanikolaou's technique, medical organizations like the American Cancer Society started recommending the screening test, the rates of death from cervical cancer was cut in half. Now, Dr. Papanikolaou was nominated over five times for the Nobel Prize, but sadly never won. He's quoted as saying, My ideal is not to become rich or to be happy, but to work, to act, to create, to do something worthy of an ethical and strong man. I live to serve life. While he didn't win a Nobel Prize, I think we can definitely say he lived out his ideal. Since the days of Papa Nicolau's vaginal smears, the implementation of the PAP has changed quite a bit. Generally, the technique involves exfoliating or, in less delicate terms, scraping the cells from the transformation zone of the cervix in order to examine them for cancerous or precancerous cells. Now, Dr. Papanikolaou's technique involved transferring this vaginal swab directly onto a glass slide, where it would then be examined under a microscope. In about 1996 or 1999, a new liquid-based cytology method was produced and quickly adopted by the wider medical community due to its ease and convenience. Today, in addition to liquid cytology, we're using HPV tests to screen for cervical cancer. In fact, more providers and professional organizations are leaning strictly towards only HPV testing. 
Let's pause and take a quick second to review HPV. Firstly, HPV stands for human papillomavirus. Now, HPV is transmitted via sexual activity, whether it be anal, oral, or vaginal. There are approximately 150 types of HPV, and 12 of those are considered to be oncogenic or cancer-causing. Now, this includes 16, 18, 31, 33, 35, 39, 45, 51, 52, 56, 58, and 59. Now, of these, HPV 16 and 18 are considered to be the most oncogenic, accounting for approximately 70% of all cervical cancer cases. Usually, one of the first questions patients ask me is, how can I tell how long I've had HPV? Or how can I tell who gave it to me? And the answer simply is, we don't know. Unless it was missed on previous screenings, it likely developed in between the screening periods. There is currently no way to test male partners for HPV. I've always made it a point to stress that HPV is very common, and in fact, the CDC notes that HPV is so common that nearly all sexually active males and females will get the virus at some point in their life, and that most of these infections will not go on to develop into cancer. But how exactly does one interpret PAP results? Now, remember, pap smears are looking for abnormalities in the cells taken from the cervix, and the results tell us just how abnormal they are. Results are broken down into the following categories. ASCUS, ASCUS, or atypical squamous cells of undetermined significance. This means that there were some changes noted, usually indicating an HPV infection, but we can't tell if these changes are necessarily abnormal or precancerous. Next, there's LSIL, which stands for low-grade squamous intraepithelial lesion. This means that the cervical cells are showing some mildly abnormal changes, again, usually caused by HPV. The next category is HSIL, which stands for, you guessed it, high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesion. Now, this typically indicates a more serious change in these cervical cells and is more associated with precancer or cancer. The last category is AGC, which stands for atypical glandular cells, and these are the cells that are found in the inner canal of the cervix and the uterus. These raise a concern for precancer or cancer, especially endometrial cancer. If any of these precancerous or cancerous cells are detected, depending on the woman's age, family history, medical history, etc., follow-up screening or additional testing is recommended. Now, let's go over what these recommendations are. And again, keep in mind, these recommendations are for women who have no prior abnormal screening tests. And again, you can find these guidelines on the ASCCP website. For females 21 to 24 years old, if test results come back with ASCUS, you repeat the PAP in 12 months or perform reflex HPV testing. For LSIL, we repeat the PAP in 12 months. For ASCH, we do a colposcopy. And for HSIL, we also do a colposcopy. Now, I'll take a short pause here to define what a colposcopy is. A colposcopy is when a provider uses a type of microscope to review the surface of the cervix for things like abnormal pigmentation, ulceration, erosion, etc. Then a solution of acetic acid is applied to the cervix, which in turn causes the abnormal cervical cells to appear white. Biopsies are then taken from these areas and sent off to be tested. Sometimes, something called ECC, or endocervical curatage, is performed. This involves a straw-like tube that's inserted into the endocervical canal in order to collect tissue samples for testing. 
For women 25 to 29 years old, with the result of ASCUS on their pap, usually require a repeat pap in 12 months, or they could have a reflex HPV testing performed. If the test comes back with LSIL or ASCH, a colposcopy is performed. If the result comes back as HSIL, then the woman needs immediate excisional treatment or a colposcopy. Now, usually the excisional treatment includes something called a LEAP, or a loop electrosurgical excision procedure, which involves using a thin, looped, electrically charged wire to excise the transformation zone of the cervix. For women 30 and above, further testing is really based on her HPV status. For women who are HPV negative and have a result of ASCUS, we repeat the co-testing in about three years. If the results come back with LSIL, we repeat the PAP in 12 months, or get a colposcopy. For ASCH, we go forward with a colposcopy. And for HSIL, we can either do an immediate excisional treatment or colposcopy. Now, if a woman is HPV positive and has either ASCUS, LSIL, or ASCH, we do an immediate colposcopy. Like with HPV negative women 30 and above, if there is a diagnosis of HSIL, we do an immediate excisional treatment or colposcopy. It's important to note that AGC at any age can be followed up with colposcopy, endocervical sampling, or endometrial sampling, depending on the subcategory. Now, let's talk about screening. First off, I should say that a vaginal pap smear is not the only screening tool for HPV detection. There is also anal and oropharyngeal paps, but these aren't recommended in the general population and therefore rarely done. For a long time, it was recommended that a female over the age of 21 get a pap smear annually, but as we learned more about the virus and we learned that it takes many years for the cancer to develop, the recommended time between screenings has grown. Today, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists recommends that females between the age of 21 and 29 should receive a pap smear every three years. Now, women ages 30 to 65 can either get a pap smear every three years, they can have co-testing, which is when a pap includes HPV testing every five years, or they can solely have HPV testing every five years. After 65 years of age, you can stop screening for cervical cancer if the patient has never had an abnormal pap or if her last two or three paps were negative. Testing for HPV before the age of 21 is not considered necessary as the chance of developing cervical cancer at this age is very low. Last but not least, let's talk about cervical cancer prevention, specifically the HPV vaccine. Now, there are three main vaccines available, the Gardasil, which protects against HPV 6, 11, 16, and 18, Gardasil 9, which protects against HPV 6, 11, 16, 18, 31, 33, 45, 52, and 58, and the Cervarex, which just protects against HPV 16 and 18. The HPV vaccine is recommended for both males and females at the age 11 to 12, but can be given as early as 9 years old. If the patient is less than 15 years old, two doses of the HPV vaccine are given at 0 and 6 to 12 months. If the patient is greater than 15 years old, then a three-dose series is recommended at zero, one to two months, and six months. For persons 27 and above, vaccination is not really recommended, but it is a decision to be made on an individual basis. Some common questions surrounding this vaccine are, if I've been diagnosed with HPV, can I still get the vaccine? And the answer is yes. Well, what if your patient's pregnant? Well, there's limited info on the safety of it, but generally it's recommended that we wait until the baby's born. 
And lastly, what are the potential side effects? Like many vaccines, side effects include a local site reaction, a post-vaccine syncable event, and an allergic reaction. Well, I was on my pediatric rotation, and I'm sure my peds PA compatriots say that five times fast if you can, uh, can attest that I found that many parents were under the impression that the HPV vaccine was really only just for females, as it protects against cervical cancer. I made it a point to inform these parents and other patients that research has shown that HPV is linked to anal, vulvar, vaginal, penile, oropharyngeal, head, and neck cancers. As there are no current screening tools for HPV in males, vaccination is really the only possible safeguard against HPV infection. Well, that about wraps it up for me. I hope you enjoyed learning about the rather unexpected history of the pap smear and modern cervical cancer screening. If you want to learn more about Dr. Papa Nicolau and the creation of the pap smear, I recommend listening to the podcast episode by Sam Keen entitled The Science Immigrants Who Saved Millions, or reading the book entitled Dr. George and Machi Mary Papanicolaou as I knew them by Dr. Neda Vutsa Perdiki, a former student of Dr. Papanicolaou's and the former director of exfoliative cytology at my alma mater, the University of Florida. You can also find all the resources for this episode in the show notes listed on our website. You can find links to our episodes on APOG's website, www.paobgyn.org. And you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, or anywhere podcasts are found. You can also follow APOG on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at APAOG to stay up to date on all the cool things that we're up to. And lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It really makes a difference in our visibility, and it would mean the world to me. Well, that's it. That is the end of my pandering. Until next time, stay safe, tell someone you love them, and bring a little kindness into the world. Goodbye.